BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. If you're like me, you've probably had a pretty stressful week. No matter what happens or what side you're on, it feels like it's the end of the world as we know it. I've been binging Netflix and hoping to find some clarity in this muddied moment. So I decided to talk to a prolific novelist who writes about the apocalypse while also imagining strange new worlds to come. Right now, when we're all feeling just a little powerless, that's about as hopeful as it gets. Meet Jeff Vandermeer. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hey. <laughs> What's funny? It was as I got onto the video, I realized that my hair was sticking up in like a horn on the top of my head. <laughs> it's still dangerous to get a haircut in this state. So. Oh, yeah. It's dangerous to do a lot of things in your state. Yeah. <laughs> Vandermeer lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife, Anne, and his cat, Neo. Oh, yeah. He's like 17 pounds and uh, gallops across the living room floor like a tiny horse. <laughs> a massive mutant cat is no surprise. Vandermeer's body of work blurs the lines between fantasy and the natural world. Wondrous and also scary creatures fill the pages of his dozens of novels and short stories. He's best known for Annihilation, the first book of the Southern Reach trilogy. It follows a group of scientists as they explore Area X, a mysterious region that seems to defy logic and is inhabited by otherworldly beings, like a dolphin with human eyes. In one of his other novels, Born, a giant flying bear rules over a destroyed city. In Dead Astronauts, one of the narrators is a blue fox. And Vandermeer's own backyard is teeming with wild animals. Real ones. I had two trail cams out last night, and we have raccoons that have now grown up in the yard from babies earlier this summer. And one of them took out the one trail cam by actually pulling it off of a log and then dragging it around the yard. <laughs> and then the other the other one is just simply that they tried to overload the system, in a sense, because I put a baseball by one of the bird baths. Right, and, which you do. Well, I mean, you need enrichment for the animals. I don't feed wildlife, but I do provide water and I do do this. And uh, there's now 350 videos of raccoons playing with baseballs uh they're literally just playing with it and it's quite fascinating to see because you know raccoons are often seen as solitary animals i've never talked to anyone as enraptured by animals as vandermeer is in the middle of a terrifying week his fascination with nature is refreshing and a much-needed reminder that we're not the only species trying to survive it's a message that's as clear in his work as it is in his yard projects Raccoons are often seen as solitary animals or in these huge kind of marauding packs. But we have more or less wild raccoons because we have this woodland trough between houses and these babies that have grown up in a situation where they haven't had to cross roads or anything. They just live in this ravine and they're just playing. They're just having a good time. But I kind of am attached to some of these individual raccoons. They, they really show very individuated behavior. You're like Jane Goodall. You're like the Jane Well, Goodall. no. <laughs> 
if they find me living down in the ravine with the raccoons, then you'll know something's gone terribly wrong. <laughs> I had some raccoon pack in San Francisco, but they were a little more aggressive. When I put the garbage out, they would come near, and then one of them would stand up to a full child size. Oh, yeah, know, that's you know, always a little disturbing. They, I, it is, but then you're like, you're a child size, but then again, you have claws. And so I used to have like a face-off every Thursday with the raccoon pack. Yeah. So you do this for what, your amusement? I get, like to have a sense of the wildlife moving through at night. And we've actually, the rewilding has been in part also to encourage moths and other nocturnal pollinators, which are actually a huge part of the ecosystem. So the ones I don't post, are, I'm basically cataloging swarms of insects. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but it gives me an idea of what's moving through. Like I know that foxes move through, they don't live in the ravine, but they use it as a thoroughfare. So it allows me to uh, manage the habitat for as much wildlife as possible. This is a perfect way to get into your books because, <laughs> you know, you sort of are creating your own Area X there, I guess. <laughs> well, people have varying ideas about what Area X is. At the end of the day, you know, Area X is a, a very natural, nice, beautiful place as long as you don't stay there too long. But right. I think um, what it is is that in Area X, at least by the rules of that fictional construct, People who are more attuned to their environment and more already integrated with it have less of an issue. So it's just like a almost a metaphorical or a more direct embodiment of what we see in the real world. Because what is somebody, you know, like a few streets down, I saw someone the other day doing something very disturbing. They were spraying herbicide across all of their dead leaves under their pine trees. Well, they're also increasing their own possibility of cancer. <laughs> so... By not living in harmony, they're also killing themselves to some degree. So so that's kind of what I'm getting at in part there. But I also think that it's important for Area X to have its own unknowable, ultimately unknowable purpose to the point where, even though I know most of it, there are things I don't know too. So, okay, you've been called the new weird. How do you describe yourself? Well, I, I guess I'd, I'd usually just describe myself as a novelist um, because I tend to, even within this kind of ecological niche, write a lot of different kinds of fiction. Uh, I think The New Yorker called me the weird Thoreau, which cracked me up because, yeah. of course, Thoreau... Because Thoreau was weird. Thoreau was weird. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also not that fond of Thoreau, so... But, I, you know, you can't, like, you know, thank you. I appreciate it, but, you know. But sometimes weird is a, is a word that's applied, and I like it better than some because it's not a commercial category. You're never going to walk into the bookstore and find a... So, so the conversations are more interesting. But the reason that I like the word weird is just because weird fiction is supposed to be trying to describe something that's unknown or something that maybe frightens us, but is also beautiful and and not what we expect it to be. But here's what's interesting is depending on what someone's experience of nature is, they have different impressions of what my work is like. So annihilation to somebody who's from North Florida and has hiked here is often very normal. Like you will get charged by wild boars. You will see dolphins in unexpected places. And someone who hasn't, that's much weirder and much more potentially horrific. So that's something that I think about more and more ever since Annihilation, as I think about what is my experience versus maybe the general reader who's going to see the thing. I, I guess it's, it's that basically I feel like the real world is much stranger and more wonderful than we imagine. And sometimes what I'm trying to do in my fiction is I'm trying to show the underpinnings of that, sometimes seriously, sometimes in a funny way. Early on, I studied like squid and, and fungi quite a bit because they seem like alien life forms on Earth. And I thought if I was going to try to do something different, that studying them and putting some of that into my fiction would be one way to be kind of unique. Uh, so I think that's one of the things I think about. So talk about 
about your biggest influences from a writing point of view and then perhaps from a place point of view? Well, you know, in high school, I had an amazing creative writing teacher who read my work and then handed me a book by Angela Carter, this amazing British writer. And um, that was one of the f- most amazing experiences of my life because I didn't realize you could use language that way. And even Dead Astronauts is kind of like a, going back to an homage to people like Angela Carter, who their use of language is like poetry in their fiction. And then also just her bloody mindedness and her willingness to fall on her face. Like she would say in interviews, I don't care about being perfect in my work. I care that I pushed as hard as I could. And so that was really important to me, not just the fiction, but the things she said about fiction. And then Vladimir Nabokov was also hugely influential because of the things he does at like a paragraph level. The stylistic mastery, but also there's in his best books like Penin, there's a real emotional resonance that I respond to and that he's not given enough credit for. And then there's an obscure American writer, Edward Whittemore, who I, I think is as good as like a Thomas Pynchon, but is totally out of print, who has these amazing novels like Jerusalem Poker, which is about a poker game for control of Jerusalem with all these magic realist elements. So they were the writers that made me think that there was all this potential in not doing the normal things, I guess. Right, right. What's the power in doing that, in shifting in that way? Not just to be weird for weird's sake. No, no, it's not It's not about that. I mean, I'm really talking about, like, technique. So early on, I, I realized that I, I didn't like doing the same thing twice. So if you're not going to do the same thing twice structurally or the same kinds of characters necessarily, then you need to learn as much technique as possible so that you have as many tools as possible to, to do different kinds of novels. So I think there was power in knowing that if I could just break things down to that level, that I could get better and have control over what I was able to write, that I would have more things to write about. But then also knowing that I was going to write no matter whether I was published or not was extremely powerful. I realized like even today I would be writing even if I wasn't published. And so when you realize that, and I realized that very early on, that was very empowering because it meant it didn't, you know, I I was very ambitious, but I think that a lot of times I rolled with the punches and dealt with setback a lot better because I still had this core of, it doesn't really matter on one level because I'm always going to be writing anyway. Even if nobody reads it. Exactly. And then also I knew very early on that I wanted to be a writer. So that was also extremely powerful because I had a purpose. I knew what my decision-making was going towards. Mm -hmm. Place is so important to you. You spend a lot of time, not just with your raccoons and discussing them on Twitter, but the idea of where you are and going to places and hiking and moving through spaces. Talk about a little bit growing up in the Fiji Islands. Was that what interested you in place, especially natural places? I think it was the confluence of things because the stuff that I remember from Fiji was the contrast. Okay. So Absolutely amazing, gorgeous place that was so wild, especially back then. And you'd step out of your front door and, and you'd just be confronted with it every day. And the beach was right there. We lived right outside of Suva Harbor and I could just walk down to the beach every day. We could actually go up into the mountains because, of course, it's a, a volcanic uh, island or was, you know, it's dormant. But so you had a, a difference in the different kinds of terrains. But then also I was uh, asthmatic and I had allergies to most of the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents were going through a pretty drawn-out divorce. So I had this, oh, great. this juxtaposition of this amazing beauty and this amazing bounty and then all this other stuff going on. And I think that also created the initial itch to write, to kind of make sense of all of this stuff. And then also make sense of the fact that I wasn't from Fiji. You know, I was more than a tourist in Fiji, but I wasn't a citizen. And then 
coming back to the U.S. was pretty incomprehensible the first couple of years in Ithaca before we moved to Florida. But when we moved to Florida, and North Florida especially, and North to Central, is so wild. We like to think of the natural areas as being in, like, the Amazon. But, you know, North Florida is one of the most biodiverse places in the world. And, you know, so so I felt like I was coming home in a way. It felt like Fiji to me. Is that why you moved there? Yeah. After two years of, of Ithaca, my parents could not take the winters, basically. It was just too much of a shock. And so we moved to Florida. And so you started to see all the creatures, the various creatures within Florida is a, an incredibly wild place. If you just even step two seconds outside of a city. Yeah. And I mean, we also think about destruction as occurring somewhere else. So you see pictures of the Amazon. Well, that same kind of destruction is happening in Florida right now from developers who are just clear cutting things everywhere. We just don't have a signature animal to show clinging desperately from the last tree. But the same thing is happening. So we can't really privilege ourselves with saying that we're not doing the same things that we're aghast about other places. It's just happening in a different way. But there is so much life here and so much decay where this trough that's both not tropical, but also tropical, it's hard to describe. It it, it keeps your senses completely alive. But, you know, and I I also often push back, you know, there's some Florida writers who really uh, lean into that whole Florida's terrible or Florida's blah, blah, yeah. blah, or this. The and hurricanes I don't actually, are coming. I, I love it. I yeah. love the decay. I love everything about it. So tell me, what are some of the real life creatures that inspire the ones, the stranger creatures you're writing? Because I'm not so sure your creatures are so strange. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm trying to make them normalized, even when they're a giant psychotic flying bear like Mord and Bourne. I take details from everywhere, just like um, everywhere I go. It doesn't matter where I'm traveling. I'm always collecting sounds, smells, and I'm actually literally feeling different textures. Uh, With regard to animals, it's kind of a patchwork as well. So our cat, Neo, is very bear-like. The way that he leans over a cat tree, his shoulders are very bear-like. So that detail is suddenly in a book. A raccoon in the yard is a, a particular kind of personality. So suddenly that's a giant marmot in another book. So you're doing the same thing that you're doing with your human characters. They're bits and pieces from real life, from your imagination, maybe bits of you. And it all just comes together in that, in that way. Uh, but yes, I feel like that still moves the pendulum in terms of or, or the spectrum so that people maybe feel or experience something different about the wilderness, about animals. I mean, if you Google, like, for example, flying swirl right now, which we have lots of flying swirls in the ravine, the first thing you get is pest control links <laughs> right? that don't even necessarily look like pest control links. So what we have right now is all this propaganda about animals and this idea that almost all animals on some level, if you Google them, are terrible things you should get rid of. And so that's also what I'm kind of pushing back against with kind of giving them interiority, making sure that even when they're not viewpoint characters, whatever they're doing in the background makes sense for who they are as an animal. And one of the things you talked about is find contamination and greet it warmly, attempt to make friends with it. Perhaps it will not destroy us. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, we spend a lot of time keeping the outside outside. You'll see a lot of stuff on social media. Someone freaks out over a spider they find inside, or they spend a lot of time spraying pesticides for some animal or insect that's completely normal. And we have this idea that because there's like a wall dividing us from the outside with regard to our houses, that that's a real wall, as opposed to just this almost kind of a mental construct in terms of what the outside is and what the inside is, especially in the context that we are ourselves more inside, outside than we imagine. I find fascinating these pieces uh, and books by various uh, scientists about the role of bacteria 
in our bodies and the fact that we're crawling with all of these microparasites and things like that. And, which are and, good. Which are good, right. And so if we could only see it, mm-hmm. we would realize that our bodies themselves are communicating with the landscape in sometimes very intimate ways. And there's less divide between our bodies and the world than we recognize. And that's something that I definitely try to convey in the books, because I feel like if you're going to work in this space, you're trying to also convey maybe a truth that isn't obvious and something that also has great metaphorical value. And also is is one reason why we're in the position we're in right now, because we keep creating these divides, you know, locally in terms of politics, you know, <laughs> there's this race right now where in the paper, they said that one candidate was supported by local environmentalists, which was their way of trying to say tree huggers versus people who care about homes for people, you know, and that's the same thing. It's like, there's all these binaries that occur that don't make any sense in terms of what we need to do to get out of the crisis we're in. Well, we're, we're in a very binary period of our world, correct? <laughs> Would you say? We're in a, we're in a <laughs> yeah, I don't even know what to describe what it is we're in right now. <laughs> We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, hit subscribe. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversations with COVID vaccines are Monsif Slowey or Nobel laureate Dr. Jennifer Doudna, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Jeff Vandermeer after the break. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash hardfork today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash hardfork. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. If you don't know our show, it's true stories that unfold like little movies for radio. Lots of them funny with surprising moments and plot twists. We've been on the radio for years. And we've teamed up with The New York Times to bring you new episodes of This American Life a full day and a half before you can find them anywhere else online. And the place you can do that is the New York Times audio app every Saturday morning. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, Plus, This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories when you're in the mood to hear something good, but you don't have time for a whole episode. And the New York Times audio app, can I say, is chock full of tons of other stories and podcasts curated every day for those moments that you want to listen to something and you don't know what you want to listen to. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. And if you're not already a New York Times subscriber, well, this is another reason to become one. Again, that's nytimes.com slash audio app. What's the most fantastical thing in 2020 politics, in your opinion? What are the creatures you see? Oh, God. Oh, God. It's tough. I mean, you know, it's just like I'm not going to, I'm not going to go out and write a novel about this period right away. I'm going to let it seep into my subconscious. It's tough to actually kind of separate things out because there's so much coming at us so quickly. I think that It's still fantastical to me that the idea that the president can tweet misinformation that affects policy, affects 
the markets affects everything is still to me the most fantastical thing. I don't know why that still sticks with me. And and the fact that like there are no depths to it. <laughs> um, the thing that doesn't surprise me, I suppose, is just simply that he's allowed the space for extremism. Like the extremism was always there. Like we knew this. And I think that's what doesn't surprise me is that talking an opening for this was enough to make violence real. And I don't think people understood that. I, you know, you would see a lot of pushback on social media from people saying things about, you know, certain kinds of speech on the internet and how that really didn't matter because it wasn't in the real world. It's like, well, yes, it, it really does matter in right, terms of how people act <laughs> and what happens to people. And also his his tweets are very surreal. And then you find yourself parsing what he's trying to talk about because as they become less and less coherent, there is still actually like, you can see the seed of what it was. You'll then see Twitter like go off on a tangent of being more outraged about something than it even really warrants. And then you also still hate yourself for even trying to parse it. <laughs> right, right. Do you think he'll inspire one of your characters? Oh, he already, I mean... You have to understand, I've, I've already encountered this type before. Uh, so Lowry in the Southern Reach, who has in the past seemed somewhat bombastic to some reviewers, is actually based on some real people that I know and very much in a Trump mode. And so, you know, <laughs> larger than life? No, this, this is actually what some people are like, especially behind the scenes. It's just Trump is more open about it than some people are. But you see the same kind of thing almost always embodied, I would say, by a white guy who has maybe risen farther than his actual merits <laughs> deserve and comes from a certain kind of background. So I've I've encountered quite a bit of abuse from that kind of business person or leader and seen it. And Trump just lets it be out there. Do you think it's possible we're in a simulation? I mean, I, I see that and I, I just wonder what the point of it is. Like, if we find out we're in a simulation, how the hell does it affect anything? Um, but I find that idea a little bit dangerous because I do feel like it begins to allow people to have a disconnect. And to me, everything is so frighteningly real that it, it just seems absurd on the face of it or irrelevant. Well, what do you think the most creepiest, most surreal technology is? You know, here we, we are now in mm. the technology age, speaking of being farther away from nature or natural right. instincts. But yet you engage in it, which so do I. Mm -hmm. How do you look around when you see the internet? Well, I've been very lucky, like on Twitter, which is I play around a lot and people respond to that and they engage and play back, uh, which is sh shocking to There's me. There's great parts to it. When you do your plants, they're beautiful. <laughs> but but I think it's not even necessarily social media, but in terms of tech, the creepiest thing to me is green tech that is disconnected from the larger picture. So, for example, they were going to have a solar farm in the middle of a desert because they thought the desert didn't have any life in it. And they were basically going to destroy this whole area. So, Or even though it's a minor thing compared to other sources of bird deaths, the fact that wind turbines kill a quarter of a million birds a, a year is not an insubstantial thing and definitely something that you'd think that these are the kinds of things that would be at the birth of the idea and in conceptualizing it and then making it, you would already have taken into account that you're not going to create some other ecological problem with your green tech. Have you met Facebook? They have no sense of, this is my whole theme, <laughs> this idea of lack of consequences or no anticipation of consequences. And I don't want to like generalize, but it is true that I do feel like there is a tech bro attitude that feeds into this that is also disconnected from nature on the green tech side. And so I, I harp on that just because of the irony of it. 
obviously there are worse things, you know, obviously there are privacy issues. There's all the issues with regard to Facebook, which is such a, a difficult thing, because like if I want to engage in local politics, I have to do it through Facebook. Nobody on Twitter cares. <laughs> I get crickets when I post there. But the way that Facebook is organized makes it easier to engage in and influence local politics. So I stay on Facebook, even though I know that Facebook has been doing some terrible things. So I don't think Twitter is that much better in that regard either, in terms of feeding into a general sense of despair and hopelessness at times and and just making it difficult for us to actually function. But I find that I personally, at least, and everyone's going to have a different way, I get over my sense of powerlessness by engaging more and more in local politics. And that means I know more and more about... (laughs) how things happen in ways that are sometimes disturbing, but it also allows me to at least have some control because I have that that information and perhaps a little bit of influence. Uh, one thing that's useful from my perspective is that my power base is not Tallahassee. My power base, if you want to call it that, is a readership that is beyond just the city. So, you know, I've actually had, you know, like I wrote an op-ed about a candidate for county commission who is really pretty terrible. And um, I had a lot of local business owners email me and say, yeah, we, we agree. We just can't say that because we're afraid it's going to affect our business. So, so that's one way that I can personally be useful and get over the frozenness. The other is the rewilding of the yard. And, and I, I like that because it is a political act as well as an act of ecology or something. Um, and then I'm very fortunate to be a writer to be able to engage in that way. So one thing that kind of kept me, I guess, sane and, and focused is I had to finish this novel, Hummingbird Salamander, which is an ecological thriller, and it deals with all of these issues we've been talking about. Well, talk to me about why salamander. Salamanders, they absorb everything, right? I'm not a scientist, but no, I, I play one about on that. a podcast. <laughs> they absorb damage more visibly and, and are more at harm from even like someone picking them up and having the wrong hand sanitizer on their hands. You know what I'm saying? So it shows the the thing we've been talking about before this, the contamination and the dissolution of the outside and the inside in very dramatic physical fashion. So I think that is one reason why. They're also, like I said, because of that, they are one of the leading indicators of whether an environment is healthy or not. If they're in decline, then you know that definitely something is really terribly wrong. And then also the fact that they have this amazing life cycle where they're both in the water and on land, and they have to kind of change themselves to do that, I think I find very fascinating. And again, gets back to that whole idea of, you know, not taking stuff for granted. You know, it's like when I see a salamander, it's like I'm seeing an organism from an alien planet in a good way. It's like, this is amazing. You said at one point, fiction should be a laboratory where you express dangerous ideas. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, for example, in uh, Hummingbird Salamander, there's a lot of references to bioterrorism and things that are illegal, things that I would never, ever engage in myself. But that as we reach these critical points and as, for example, governments restrict what environmentalists can do, like what some environmentalists did in the 70s in Northern California, for example, short of like, you know, actual terrorism is is now reclassified because of 9-11 and things like that as illegal. So when that happens you know, you go into a radical environmentalism class and sometimes the most radical thing they're talking about is unveiling a banner about the environment at a Republican convention. And so you're reduced to this performative aspect and we're deeper and deeper into this crisis. So we have all kinds of issues facing us as well. We have people protecting elephants by shooting poachers, right? So that's something right there that is a a human dynamic that is something that has to be interrogated and explored. 
we have the idea of geoengineering our way out of this crisis and all the possible dangers of that, because <laughs> look at how good we are, even with just things like introducing a species to kill another species that's invasive, and then suddenly it right. takes oh, over. Right, oh, it always ends badly. <laughs> that story always, it never, yeah, ends, it never well. ends well. Oh, oops. The problem is, there's all these systemic shifts that have to occur. I mean, I don't think I even trust uh, a Biden administration to oversee delicate habitat <laughs> restoration in this way. It, it, we, we have so many things going on. We have so many special interests in our government that um, we need sweeping change for these things to be done in an ethical and useful way. And then, you know, even today with invasive species like Chesapeake Bay, they cleared this invasive aquatic plant and spent millions on it and then realized, oh, this was actually a beneficial invasive <laughs> Right, right. You know, so the landscape itself is changing very rapidly because of climate crisis. And that means that we have to, again, get away from this binary or these general solutions. They're going to be local solutions a lot of the times, and they're, they're going to be specific to an area. Rather than systemically. Well, one of the, the story of a lot of these things is, oh, oops, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Such as COVID, for example, right now. You know, here we have this idea that these diseases leap from animals to humans, sort of nature getting back at us in some ways. Some people see it as. Do you think we'll come out of it with a different relationship to nature? Is it the same? Yeah, I think in general we'll come out of it in a more positive way. I think that there are places and systems that won't be affected by it at all, even though they should be. But it's like part and parcel of things that are going on, like uh, Boulder, for example, their mosquito control program is now to restore wetlands, because if you have non-degraded wetlands, you really don't usually have mosquito problems. Radical solution as opposed to spraying all over the place. And, and I mentioned that just simply because, you know, you talk about animal to human viruses, it's the same thing. And then also, I just think of this as, you know, we have to understand that this is, it's almost like the election. It's like, Yes, we are pushing to this goal, but there is so much that has to be done after the goal. And the same thing with the coronavirus in the sense that it is part and parcel of the climate crisis. It is not divorced from it. It is linked to things like habitat loss and habitat degradation. And the fact that we have to not just have green tech, we have to have biodiversity on our planet in order to survive. And so it's almost this weirdly, this invisible thing has made visible the cracks in our systems and the faults in our systems that we need to desperately fix in order to deal with the next thing and to deal with the climate crisis in general. Some of your work, like Born, is post-apocalyptic. Do you think the apocalypse is inevitable? Or should it be inevitable? Here's the thing. I think that some form of the apocalypse, because of the degree of warming so far, and the fact that, especially, I can't speak for anywhere else, but in this country, development, everything else is going in the wrong direction. Like, we're literally adding carbon emissions just by the amount of roads we're building and crap. That some version of the apocalypse is inevitable. The question is whether we can mitigate it to the point where it's livable. And that is still possible, but it's not possible without the right long-term planning, without getting special interests out of our government at all levels. And that's the real issue, is that if you talk to people, you know, the majority of people, they understand that these are common-sense solutions. You know, it shouldn't be, and it isn't, I don't think, controversial in Tallahassee to put more money into local businesses to help them survive, because that helps the economy. It also begins to start to talk to where we should put our money going forward, and think more in terms of community and less about, I don't know if the word's profit, really, because 
Well, how do you get people thinking that way? Because they don't, you know what I mean? Like it always... I honestly think young people are really thinking about this a lot differently. I I think that the 20-somethings that I see out there, at least in Tallahassee, and again, I don't like to speak more generally because then I may be speaking falsely, but I, I know that generally you see more activism, you see more understanding of the complexities of these issues. The question is whether it happens soon enough. You know, you write this for your fiction and you sort of, you draw out all these odd and unusual ways it's going to happen. But what do you, give me the realistic version of it. The realistic version of it is we go through a really bad patch that includes a lot of civil unrest. The stuff that with regard to Trump doesn't go away because he stoked up this thing. We have to manage and deal with that and hope that at least some aspect of it dies down because we have a restoration of somebody who believes in science and doesn't stoke this kind of stuff. So I really think we're going to go through a rough patch. We still have time to mitigate these issues, but we, you know, we have to fight really hard for it. Where do you see hope? Because you're actually a very hopeful person and your writing is a form of activism and maybe I'm misreading. No, it is a form of activism. I wouldn't write at all if I didn't have hope. I mean, I I just... What would you do? I don't know. I'd probably, I probably would just be hanging out in the ravine with the raccoons until the end times. I think really what it boils down to is not having a false sense of hope. What gives me hope is having the actual information. Like my daughter works for a sustainability company in in Amsterdam that's really, really good. And she has all the data and she gives us the data. She's the one who convinced me that we still have time to change things uh, because I was operating off of social media, off of all the doom scrolling and everything else. So you see the actual data and we can still pull out of this. And part of it is being smart about green tech, but that's not the whole picture. It's not useful to have hope that's magical thinking. But, you know, we also have to understand that it is, as they say, as a cliche almost, reality is unevenly distributed. So born, you know, ruined cities where people are having a day-to-day existence, minus some of the surreal, fantastical elements, is something that happens right now. And that was part of the point of Born, part of the point of... Eating things up, something that continually eats and eats. Right. And so your point is absolutely correct, that it's not going to be this... We're not going to necessarily recognize it. And that's something I talk about in Hummingbird Salamander, is that it's going to be bad in one place, and it's going to be okay in another place. And we're going to have lulls. We're going to have situations where people are disconnected because to them in their daily lives, they don't see it yet. Well, one of the things that's interesting is some of the technology being developed in Silicon Valley was these ideas of empathy and VR and everything Mm. else of getting out into these environments that you're talking about. Not everybody can have a ravine of raccoons like you do. So the idea is using VR and these other things. And I was at the Stanford Empathy Lab. And every time I go to one of these things, I think, well, how do you have a lifetime of empathy? How do you have a lifetime of fear? Is that something you're trying to get? How do you get through to people who are never going to experience what you're talking about. Well, I mean, I have, uh, on a weekly basis, I have people in very urban areas telling me that just the social media feed, and maybe reinforced by the books, maybe not, changes their perspective. I have people sending me photographs of their balconies where they planted wildflowers in heavily urban areas and been shocked that hummingbirds, you know, in an area with almost no trees have come to feed on these wildflowers. So I think it doesn't take very much. And I see it changing a lot. I mean, the fact that on any given week, I can have maybe 10 people email me or direct message me and say, I didn't know herbicides were so terrible and I stopped using them. Or just, I stopped raking my yard. Or I now appreciate this spider (laughs) that I didn't appreciate before. Those are small things, but those are really very important. And, And when you see that, then 
you don't feel so much that like I don't feel so much anymore that my books have to be, you know, warning signals or something because I see so many other people doing that. What creature would you like to come back as if once if you have of the creatures you've created? A giant flying bear. No. <laughs> Why not? That's a good question. It would have to be something durable. Probably I want to come back as a coyote because I think coyotes are still going to do okay for a while. <laughs> or a vulture. Vultures are cool. Oh my God. And very sweet and social. That's the other thing. If you ever yeah. come across a vulture in a rehab situation, you'll find that they're almost like puppy dogs. They're wow. extremely sweet and sociable. Well, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> I'll get right on that. <laughs> Jeff, this has been delightful. Thank you so much. And good luck with your raccoons. I hope they oh, don't yes. take, they're going to get you. You know that. They're coming for you. They look They're friendly. very sweet. They're okay. very sweet. Okay. <laughs> you haven't met the San Francisco raccoons. I've no, seen I haven't. I only have these ravine raccoons it's that a are gang. very sweet. Once they get a taste of blood, you'll see what happens. What? <laughs> good knowing what? you. Good knowing you. Bye. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. Bye. Take care. Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Hiba Elorbani, Matt Kwong, and Vishaka Darba. Edited by Paula Schumann with music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Laura Kelly. Special thanks to Renan Borelli, Liriel Higa, and Kathy Tu. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to subscribe to a podcast. So subscribe to this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway just in time for the apocalypse, download a podcast app like Stitcher or Google Podcasts, then search for Sway and hit subscribe. You'll get episodes every Monday and Thursday. That is, if we have a future. Thanks for listening.